Hey, today we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So if you want to uh, open up your Bibles right now, go ahead and do that. Uh, if you have a Bible app, you want to open that up, go ahead and do that. Have it ready. We're going to be going through the whole chapter today. And um, it, at various times, we're going to be looking at it. So it would be good if you had it opened in front of you. While you're opening, let me just say this. I think Adam and Eve had it pretty good in the Garden of Eden. Think about this for a second with me. They had free prime real estate. That sounds pretty good, right? There was no mosquitoes in the Garden of Eden. Um, there was no need for sunscreen because the scorching heat of the sun did not scorch down upon them, which is actually a pretty, pretty good thing when you consider what the fashion uh, uh, statement of the day was. Um, there was no COVID. Somebody got that joke. <laughs> There was no COVID, there was no pain in childbirth, and then probably the greatest thing of all is we had no, uh, there was an unobstructed relationship with God that we enjoyed. Eden was like heaven on earth, but then we know that Satan came into the picture and he deceived us, and now our sin has kind of ended all of that. Now we grossly overpay for even the ugliest little piece of land. Our, our land is infested with mosquitoes, um, fashion styles are back from the 80s, and if, you know, like, come Lord Jesus, now would be the time, right? We have COVID, some of you probably have COVID right now, hopefully you're at home. And now there's pain in childbirth, or so I'm told. When our kids were born, it actually wasn't that painful of an experience, but <laughs> my wife would have something different to say about that. Probably the worst thing, though, in all of this is that our relationship with God was no longer unobstructed. Our sinful nature now stands as a barrier between us and God, and Satan works ever so hard to make sure that those realities, the realities of God, stay hidden from us. Because uh, it's always been Satan's kind of main mission, now and forever, to keep the true realities of God hidden from us. Because if he can keep the true realities of God hidden from us, then we might choose something else. And we may go somewhere else to find fulfillment. And I think Satan blurs the true reality of God when it comes to his love the most. I think if there's anything, I think Satan's happy to, to blur all the realities of God with, uh, for us, but I think he spends a little extra time on God's love, hiding that from us. Because if we can't see God's love, then we miss this essential part of God's character. Now think about that for a sec. Who would God be without love? He would be like Satan. He would be full of hate. He would be set on destruction. Life is in danger in the absence of love. Now, we have been going through our sermon series on spiritual gifts, and we've pretty much wrapped that up. But before we take this and we put it back on the shelf, um, there's one more thing that we need to be talking about. And that is the contents of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Um, and, and as we've gone through this uh, spiritual gift sermon series, I hope that this has been a challenging sermon series for you. One that has caused you to discover what your spiritual gifts are, has helped you engage with them, maybe experiment and try some of these things out. The mission at Ellerslie was designed by God with you in mind. And so you're very much an important part of this mission uh, don't be a wallflower as we move forward, and we're not talking about spiritual gifts as much anymore after this. You are an integral part of this mission. So anyway, before we finish our discussion on spiritual gifts, there's one more thing that we need to talk about. And it's not another spiritual gift, but it is something that is central to the spiritual gifts. And Paul talks all about this in 1 Corinthians 13. And to, 
to paint a picture for you of what Paul is talking about here, uh, I'm going to use a donut analogy. I'm going to spoil your surprise. You're getting a donut after service if you're a father. On the way out of church, I, I was watching people as they came into, the, into church today. We got some tables set up so we can serve you donuts, and we had put some hand sanitizer on there. And I was watching as every single person came into the church, looked at the tables and hand sanitized as they came in, and I thought, look at those guys reading between the lines. Good for you guys. <laughs> But it's for donuts after the service. So anyway, I'm going to use the donut analogy. Let's decide. Donut analogy is coming up here. Okay. Chapter 13 for us, talking about spiritual gifts, is like the glaze on the top of the donut. It's the sweet stuff that makes it all worth uh, the effort. Without chapter 13, the rest of the teaching on spiritual gifts is just this flavorless pile of carbs. Just good for the trash. Nobody wants a donut without glaze on it, and it certainly is no good for your body to just eat donuts with no glaze on them. You've got to have that experience. Anyway, trust me, I know a lot about donuts. When I was uh, growing up, you're like, Joel, is this a sermon about donuts? Or about... When, I, when I was growing up, I loved to work out uh, with my buddies, and we would go two or three times a week to the gym, and we'd spend about an hour and a half working out, and then we would go swimming after that. And one of our favorite things to do after that was to go and get a half a dozen donuts, and we would eat this as a group. Okay, you caught me. It was a dozen donuts, and we shared as a group, okay? It was a dozen donuts, and we would have a box for ourselves each, okay? <laughs> so, so, so we were having a hard time figuring out what was wrong with our workout routine that we weren't able to see our abs. We couldn't figure it out. It was like we had the six-pack. We just kept it in the fridge, and so we, we didn't know how to find our abs and all of this, and it turns out it was that routine. But anyway, by the time I figured out that it was the donuts keeping us from seeing the six-pack, it didn't matter anymore. I was married, and she loved me for who I am. Anyway, Paul uses some incredibly strong language as we look at this passage in 1 Corinthians 13 today. And he uses this to contrast the behavior of the Corinthians uh, with how they were behaving and how they should be behaving. And so, um, uh, so what is in 1 Corinthians chapter 13? Well, thir 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is probably one of the more well-known passages of Scripture. And if you've been to a wedding at all, at any time, you've probably heard the contents of, of chapter 13, 1 Corinthians, spoken about. Because it's this wonderful passage that describes love in detail. But this passage actually isn't meant to describe love in the context of a marriage relationship. Although it's, it's good and it can do that. This passage is actually meant to show us that love is actually the one, one of the most important things in our relationship as Christians, or one of the most important things about being a Christian. And in fact, it's not one of the most important things. It is the most important characteristic of being a Christian. And when Paul talks about it here in chapter 13, he is telling us how our spiritual gifts should be governed by love. Somebody by the name of uh, Marion L. Sword says, in meditating on love, Paul reveals what he understands to be the character and the goal of the eschatological work of God. Love is the big picture of what God is trying to work out in our community. This is the heart of God. So if we miss this, we miss the whole point of the gospel message and we miss the foundation of our faith. 
Now, I've been a youth, I was a youth pastor a long time ago here at Ellerslie, and God called me out of that ministry so that he could bring me into the home building and renovation industry, and that's where he, he trained me on how to build things. And now that I know how to build things, he's brought me back in, and he's helping me build. He said, help me build my kingdom. So I said, okay, let's do this. But as a builder, one of the things I understand is that the foundation is very important to a structure. We use very strong materials in foundations. We use concrete and steel, and that's because it provides the solid base for everything that sits on it. If a house has foundation issues, the house is basically worthless. Nobody wants to buy it. It doesn't matter how uh, great the floor plan is. It doesn't matter what kind of finishings you have put into this house. Nobody wants a house with a foundation that's, that's, that's messed up because the doors won't open. There's cracks in it. Maybe the house is going to fall down. The foundation is critical for everything that goes on top of it to be effective and do what it needs to do. For us, as Christians, love is that solid foundation that we build our faith on. And it's on top of that foundation of love that we use our spiritual gifts. Paul starts this famous passage off of scripture with uh, a comment actually before chapter 13 begins. In chapter 12, verses 31b, he says, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. Uh, What's going on here is he's been talking to the Corinthian people about spiritual gifts and where they've been getting it wrong. And we know that the Corinthian church was having issues in, in their church. And we've talked about this quite a bit. They wanted to have the Holy Spirit and they wanted spirituality, but they were very immature in their faith. They wanted to see the spiritual gifts happening and God moving in their midst, but they had no concept or understanding of God's love in all of that. Uh, In his commentary, Gordon Fee says, the Corinthians were missing the gospel and its ethic. Everything that they were trying to build as a church didn't make any sense because they didn't have their foundation right. The foundation that they had was not love, and so everything on top of that was worthless. Nobody was going to be able to see God through what the Corinthians were building. They were, their outward expressions of their faith looked nothing like the God that they were pursuing. And so Paul sets the stage for us in this discourse on love with, and yet I will show you the most excellent way bringing us all back to this foundation for the reason why we even have a relationship with God. The reason God didn't destroy us when we first sinned in the Garden of Eden and the reason that we have Jesus with us, which is love. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is broken into three different sections. And the first section uh, is uh, verses one through three, and it tells us about the necessities of love. I'll read it here. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and my body over, or pardon me, and give my body over to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Paul is saying here, It doesn't matter what spiritual gifts you have. It doesn't matter what you're doing with your spiritual gifts. And it doesn't matter if you give yourself over to hardship so that you can look like a super Christian. If if that isn't done with a foundation of love, then all of that is pointless. It means nothing, and you gain nothing from it. Love is this necessary ingredient to bring life to all of the spiritual gifts. 
Paul uses really strong language here when he's talking to these people, but this is how Paul breaks down their incorrect perception regarding spiritual gifts. Once he does this, he's able to show them how to rebuild their foundation properly. He's bringing them back to the heart of God in this, something that they were sorely missing as a church, which leads us to verse four through seven, which shows us what love is. Now, Paul spends a good deal of time here uh, giving us characteristics of what love is and what love is not. He says this, Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil. It rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. There are eight negative statements that are given about love here, and there are seven positive ones. The seven positive ones can give us a really good picture of what God's love is like for us. And I think if we look at the eight negative ones, we get to see a little bit of what the Corinthian church was struggling with. You know, Paul had handcrafted this letter for the Corinthians, or this list for the Corinthian people. And this is to get their attention and let them know exactly where they were getting things wrong. They were envious, they were boastful, they were proud, they dishonored each other with their actions. So Paul is very direct with him, them in this list. There is no nuance in this list from their perspective. What would have happened is these would have, th- would have been things that were going on in their community. And so when this list was read in front of the community, I bet you there were people who would just hang their heads and stare at the floor. And there would have been people in there going, yeah, like I know he's talking about Bill, you know. But that, that is what would have happened. There would have been this guilt in the room because they were guilty of this. This church was not portraying God's love to one another. Their foundation was anything about, but love. But, but Paul, in a true act of love, as he's displaying God's enduring love to them, he doesn't just cut bait and say, you know what, you guys are unloving, I'm out of here. Paul continues to invest in them. He sends Timothy to help guide them and, and work through some of the challenges that were going on in this church. He, we know that he wrote another letter after this, and we're pretty sure that he wrote another one before this that we don't have anymore. Paul stayed in the game with them. Paul's goal in writing this was to help them better reflect the loving nature of God. He wanted them to grow in their faith, and he wanted this because the, the city of Corinth needed to see the light of God in their world. Now, as we look at this list, uh, it's probably not too hard to find similarities between the Corinthian church and us. You know, so the sinful nature hasn't changed this much over the years. We can look at this list as a measuring tool, and we can see and use it to measure where our love is, and, and if it's reflecting the nature of God to those around us. One of the writers said, hey, just take your name and substitute it in to uh, this passage and see if the statement is still true. So, Joel is patient, Joel is kind, forget it, I'm out. But if you think the statement is still true, or let's say you go through this whole list, and you're like, wow, yeah, like I've got it all. Maybe have your spouse do it for you and see if it's still true anymore. (laughs) And it might be a good way to find out if you're easily angered. (laughs) Paul also makes several positive statements here about love, and this is great because this is where we get to see what God's love is like for us. He says, love is patient, love is kind, A little later on, he says, it rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. And then right after this, in verse 8, he makes the statement, love never fails. When a writer 
writes something more than once, it's our cue to take note. And so when Paul says the word always four times in a row, it's like pay attention. These characteristics of God are always true. They, they will never fail. I had a moment about two weeks ago where I was having some devotional time and I had this clear picture, this uh, idea on, uh, just sort of understood just on a, on a little bit more than normal level about God's love. And as I was reflecting on his majesty and his greatness and the amazingness of God, I had this thought come to my mind. Why on earth would God want to put up with us? I mean, if you're this all-powerful, omniscient being, why put up with sinful humanity? It seems beneath God. Like, if he really is God, why would he put up with us? Let's think about that for that for a minute. When you're rich, there are certain things that you don't have to put up with because of your wealth. And I'm not talking like you and me rich, like the rich and the wealth that we get to see. I'm talking like next level rich, billionaire rich people. They don't live the same way we do. If you want to go somewhere and you're rich, you just take your jet. You drive, you know, there's no waiting in lines. You don't have to deal with all the nonsense of the airports and flights getting delayed and, you know, eight different stops to get to your destination. You know, you don't have to worry about any of that stuff. You just drive up in your limo, you walk up the stairs on your plane, and you fly away. That's awesome, that, but that's what being super rich affords you. If you want to go to space and you're a billionaire, apparently now you just make a company, create a bunch of giant rockets, and now you get to go to space. That's something you get to do if you're rich. Crazy, right? Elon Musk built a school for his kids because he wasn't happy with the curriculum at the private school I'm sure they were attending. So this is what you do. Power and wealth give you the ability to get your way more often and eliminate some of the annoyances that come with being a normal citizen. So, if you're God and you're far above even the wealthiest, most powerful person to ever walk the face of this planet, why on earth would you put up with a sinful people? People that you have to guide through life every step of the way. Constantly having to provide for their needs. Listening to their endless whining about how you should do it different. The truth is, God doesn't need us to be whole. And if I was God, and it's a good thing I'm not, I would probably just do away with us, get rid of us all. But that's not what God is. So, if God doesn't need us to be whole, and he's not getting rid of us, that means there must be something else in his character that keeps him from doing away with us, that keeps him engaged in this giant game of life with humanity. And then it hit me as I was sitting there and reflecting. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. The word that John uses here is agape. And it's the most significant form of love that we can display to one another. This is not eros love, which is like a sexual love. This isn't like philia love, which is brotherly love. Both of those types of love can end. But agape love is one that loves without anticipating love in return. Agape is the unwavering pursuit of the object of your affections. Agape is not going to give up. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8, he says, Agape is patient. Agape is kind. And in verse 7 and 8, it says, It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Agape never fails. But there is an issue here. Satan entered the picture. 
and he tempted us and we sinned and our sin caused an offense between our relationship between us and God. Turns out our love isn't as perfect as God's love. We were willing to walk away. And this is a major problem for us because our sin causes a problem because God, another part of God's character is his justice and his holiness. And if you're a just and holy God, you can't allow to have sin around you. So God, in his justice, cannot simply turn a blind eye to our sin, or he wouldn't be just anymore. And he, he can't just allow our sinfulness to be around him, or he wouldn't be holy anymore. Nor can he just get rid of us, because if he did, he wouldn't be loving. He wouldn't be loving in the agape way. If the relationship between God and his people can be destroyed by sin, then love doesn't protect. Love isn't worth trusting in. It gives us no hope. It doesn't persevere through hardships. And love can fail. That is the kind of love that we have. That is the picture of human love. Weak and breakable, but agape love. Agape in its fullest, in its fullness, as God portrays it, it is something that is worth trusting in. It is something that we can place our hopes in. It is something that perseveres through trials. And when the dust settles, agape love will remain there. It will never fail. And this is where Satan got it wrong. He got it right with us. He knew that he could mess up us, uh, uh, us up, and he was right about that. But he was wrong about God. He couldn't mess up the love of God. God's agape can't fail, and so it made a way through Jesus. His justice, holiness, and love all remain intact through Jesus. For God so agape the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus simultaneously dealt with God's justice by bearing God's wrath upon himself in our place for our sin. And then he dealt with God's holiness by cleansing us by his blood. And then Jesus is God's love in action, pursuing the unfaithful and rescuing us into a restored relationship with him. Jesus demonstrates that God's love is patient and that it's kind and it gives us what we don't deserve, that it will protect itself. God will protect his love for us. Sin and Satan aren't gonna be able to destroy it. That is worth trusting in, and that is worth hoping for. And Jesus has shown us that he will persevere, and God's love will find a way. It will not fail. Jesus is evidence of God's agape love for us. God actually gives us a picture of what enduring looks like today, here and now. And we get to see it displayed in our midst. Marriage is actually a picture of something that should reflect God's enduring love. This is two people coming together, agreeing to annoy each other for the rest of their lives, right? That was a joke. That was kind of funny. <laughs> no, the truth is marriage is two people coming together, agreeing to, and committing to love each other, to selflessly serve one another for their entire lives. The goal is that they would pursue the bond of love above all else, and this would be a representation of how God pursues love with us. This is why the Bible speaks against divorce. Not because if you get a divorce, you're somehow worse or somehow more sinful than the rest of us. No, but because divorce alters the picture of love that God is trying to communicate to humanity through the institution of marriage. 
God has been showing his love to us throughout history. It's just that we have a hard time seeing it through our broken world. The final section that we're going to look at today in chapter 13 is verses 8 through 13. And here we see that love is permanent. Paul talks about three specific spiritual gifts in these verses that the Corinthians held in high esteem um, and that he says are not going to be around. Paul says are not going to be around when Jesus returns. And this illuminates their error because they thought these specific gifts that they had were sort of like the be-all and the end-all of the Christian experience. Paul is saying, you know, you guys think you've arrived because you have these, but you haven't. There is something more amazing, more enduring, and something that is permanent that you guys have missed, and that is this foundation of love. I think of these images that you see after a house fire comes through and it destroys a home, or a forest fire rips through a town and it destroys uh, all the houses. All that's left are the foundations. Once the fire has gone through and the burnable material is gone, the only thing that's left is the foundation because the foundation is strong. The foundation is enduring. For believers, love is that eternal foundation. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part will disappear. One of the interesting things that Paul is saying here is that at some point, Jesus is going to return and some of the spiritual gifts are going to disappear. And I think we can assume that he's given us some here, but there's also going to be other ones that disappear. For example, we know that one day every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord which means we're probably not going to need the gift of evangelism. It doesn't matter if you believe in Jesus on this earth or not. One day, that experience is going to be so amazing, standing before God and experiencing that, that no one is going to be able to deny it. The blinders are going to be off, and it's going to be 100% clear, Jesus Christ is Lord. So there's not a lot of need for evangelism in an environment like that. We're also going to have perfect bodies, uh, that sounded wrong. Our bodies are not going to break down. And, and we're not going to get sick. And so there isn't going to be this need for healing. So, some of these gifts are probably not going to go uh, carry on into forever. But that's what Paul is saying. There are gifts that are going to, or there, are, there is something that remains after this. These are interesting things to mull over. The Bible's kind of vague about what gifts will be here and what gifts won't be in eternity. That's something you can mull over on your drive home with your spouse. But where the Bible is vague, it's obviously intentionally vague. God doesn't need us to know the answer to that question. And so we don't want to get hung up on that. What we want to focus on is the truth that Paul is trying to reveal to us here. And that is quite clear. It's not about which gifts are going to remain or when they're going to go. It is that love is the enduring quality we are to pursue. So while it's interesting to discuss what things are going to look like in the future, Paul doesn't want us to miss the point. Uh, and the Corinthians, he didn't want them to miss the point either that love is the foundation. In verses 11 and 12, Paul continues on saying, When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we only, uh, we only uh, pardon me, for now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. 
Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. We see two different analogies here which help us uh, see the difference between now and the future realities of God's kingdom. And Paul starts off these analogies by talking about how a child grows up into maturity. And he may have been doing that because he was trying to get the Corinthians to see how they were being immature in how they were using their spiritual gifts. But he also wants us to know and see how dramatically different this time period is that we're living in now and the future time period that we're going to be in when Jesus returns. You see, a child only understands a small part of what there is to know in the world. They know their family. They know the school that they attend. They know some of the familiar places and faces. But that's about it. This is why at 18 years old, and some of our graduates we saw here, at 18 years old, you feel like you know everything and like you're, you're able to conquer the world or that you have conquered the world. Because at 18, you essentially have conquered your world. You're graduating, you've completed school, finished, done, check. You know everything there is to know about the places you normally go and the people you're with. But as you get older and you reach your 30s, you start to see more of the world and you experience more people and you start to realize, I actually don't know as much as I thought I did. I can tell you right now that I feel more adequate at this, inadequate at this point in my life than I ever have at any other period of my life. And I would expect that that's going to continue to get worse as I get older and I'm exposed to more of the world. And I would imagine that some of you have had that same feeling as well. But it's not because we're inadequate. It's just because we all of a sudden realize there's actually much more in this world than we can grab a hold of and understand. And that's what Paul is saying here. There's so much more to know about God than we know right now. And these spiritual gifts that we use and the love that we show, that's just a reflection of what the realities of God's glory are like on earth. Verse 12 provides another analogy. It says, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. We don't see the full picture here. Corinth was known for its bronze work. And they would take bronze and they would smooth it out into a flat sheet. And they would polish that bronze up and it would be a mirror. Now this would be a far cry from a mirror like we have today. But it would allow them to see a reflection, a picture of what they were like. And Paul is saying, you know, uh, that we only understand God about as much as somebody can understand from looking at their reflection in this mirror. Just like a picture doesn't capture the essence of what we are as people, so it is with, our, uh, so it is with God in the future. When we look at a picture of ourselves or of someone else, we just see a little bit, a two-dimensional image of that person. We don't know what they're like. We don't know their mannerisms. We don't even know what they look like in three dimensions. It's much different to experience the presence of being around somebody than it is to just look at their picture in front of you. And this is what's going on here. Right now, the use of our spiritual gifts, and the, uh, we use these when we use these from a foundation of love, they only provide us with this two-dimensional image of God, this, this small glimpse of the realities of God, but there's so much more to know and experience. My first experience uh, coming back to church after COVID restrictions has li had lifted was about a year ago. And I remember this experience because it almost brought tears to my eyes. And I'm not one of these guys who gets too teary very often. But, uh, but that experience did it for me. The difference between worshiping at home in front of a television set in a small quiet room and being in the presence of hundreds of people, hearing their voices lifted up to God, singing and worshiping God was an experience that just, just about brought tears to my eyes. 
And this made me think about what it's going to be look, what's going to be like to one day worship with the object of our affection in front of us. As God is seated as on his throne in front of us, what it's going to be like to worship in that, that moment. Right now, we don't know what that'll be like. Our only experience has been sitting in a building like this, worshiping with other people. And at times, that's an amazing experience, and we feel like we're connecting with God. But we still don't have a clue what it is going to be like to have God in front of us and be singing and praising, worshiping to him. What an amazing experience we are going to be able to get a part of. Our worship is only a dim reflection, as in a mirror, of what we're going to be a part of in the future realities of the kingdom to come. A completely different experience. Right now we experience the partial realities of God through our spiritual gifts and through the love that we display with one another. But one day, Jesus is going to return and we are going to have the full picture. He will do away with the partial and we will get to experience God in his fullness. Paul closes off chapter 13 with these words. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. There really is no faith and hope without love. Love has to win the day in order for faith and hope to have something to hang on to. That's why the greatest of these is love. We can continue to have faith and hope because love has existed in eternity with God. We jokingly talked this past week about how this sermon today is the bonus episode to our spiritual gifts sermon series. But this isn't a bonus episode. Love, there is nothing more important than love. Love is the foundational element to all we believe. Our part in this is that love must be the dominating quality in our lives and in our church. Love is the central message of the gospel. This is why Jesus came, and this is the outward expression of our faith revealed to everyone around us. As a church, we want to have good biblical teaching. That's something we want to do. We want to have great ministries. We have three strategic directions, and we want to achieve those. And we will continue to press into those things and try harder to achieve them. But when these things are not done from a foundation of love, even those things are worth, worthless. First and foremost, we need to reflect as a church the character and the nature of our God, which is love. All of these other things that we're trying to accomplish are secondary. Love is the foundation from which we teach. Love is the foundation from which we do ministry. Love is the foundation in which we have mission and vision. And love is the foundation that we act out all of our actions as believers. Matthew 22, verse 37 says... Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and all of the prophets hang on these two commandments. That's Jesus saying the foundation of everything is love. The foundation of the commandments, the foundation of the law, the foundation that you use your spiritual gifts out of is love. Jesus also says in John 13, 34, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. If God is love, of course it makes sense that we would love one another and that would communicate the heart of God to the people around us. And Jesus is telling us right here, they will know that you are my disciples if you love one another because God is love. Love is a big deal to God. 
It's this indestructible part of his nature. So grab hold of love. Believe in love. Put your faith in love. And use your spiritual gifts out of it. And then for the sake of your neighbors and the people in your life that don't know God, like your coworkers, reflect as much of God's love as possible as you can to the world around you because through you, they get to see a glimmer of the realities of God's glory in their lives. You don't know this, but maybe you're the only person in their lives who will be able to reflect God's love to them. So let's do this together. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the love that you have shown us, that you have been enduring in your love, that you have not given up on us, you have pursued us, and that even though Satan tried to destroy love with his actions and we did nothing to make it happen, you pursued us. And we can have love and we can have a future and we have a hope and we can have faith because of you and what you've given us. And so God, I pray as a church that we would reflect the character and nature of you, which is love in our church. And that we would be able to build our foundation upon this as we go forward. In Jesus' name, amen.